I realized I failed to introduce Chan the way that I needed to. Troy is away, I think, for his 15th anniversary. They're doing a little anniversary trip, so when they get back, make sure you tell them happy anniversary. But Chan is a good friend of Troy's, and um, I discovered uh, one of the fathers of the, a kid on my soccer team. So um, some interesting kind of connections there. Chan, thanks for leading us in worship. We are continuing uh, this morning in our series on honest questions from God. Not questions that we ask Him, but questions that He asks us. And you can see by looking at your bulletin, the question that we're exploring this morning is whether we worship our kids. Got your little, my kid's smarter than your kid sticker, baby on board, your kids are ugly, you know. Um, <laughs> that is what, in effect, we're saying. And the truth is... <coughs> For all of us, when we think of idols, we think of some natural wonder, maybe a rock, a rock formation, or some man-made object that we physically bow down to and worship. And in that case, like none of us are idolaters. We, we're Americans. We don't bow down to anybody. We don't bow down to a rock or to a statue. But the truth is that the most powerful idols in our lives are often the ones that look right back at us in the mirror. And the ones that wave at us in the rearview mirror sit in the back seat of our minivan. Because an idol is anything that we love and serve more than God. We can love things, but if we love them inordinately, if they are not in the right priority, then they indeed become an idol in our life. And when that happens, the results are devastating because there is no created thing that can bear the weight of your worship because created things were designed. Even our bones and the rocks are going to cry out. All created things are created to give, not to receive worship. And yet we'll see in our story here this morning uh, the devastating effect that comes when a parent honors their kids more than they honor God. We'll be in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2. I would encourage you to turn there a little presentation program is a little buggy today. So if you're dependent upon the screen, you might miss some of it. But that, that's page 191 uh, in the Pew Bible in front of you. And I'll be reading from the Holman Christian Standard Version if you're reading on your uh, digital device. So you can get your scriptures lined up with mine. <clears throat> First Samuel is a historical book, and it's a transition between the period that we know as the period of the judges, where God raised up charismatic leaders like Samson or Gideon to expel the invaders and to call the nation back to righteousness. Uh, it's between that period of the judges and the period of the kings. And so 1 Samuel is predominantly the story about Samuel, who is a prophet and really kind of the last of the judges. The book of Judges, as it transitions into the history of Samuel, ends with a, a terrible phrase saying that uh, paganism was so rife and political correctness was on the rise so that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no standard of objective morality or truth. Everybody did exactly what they thought was the right thing to do. Sounds like a parable of modern-day America. And so the book of 1 Samuel really relates the story of the last two judges because after Samuel comes Saul, the first king of Israel. And the last two judges are indeed uh, Samuel, and right before him who precedes him, the person of Eli. And so we're going to focus this morning almost exclusively on the story of Eli and his relationship with his sons. 
Now, it's important for you to know that Eli is described in a variety of ways. He is described as an old man. As a matter of fact, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 15 says that he was the glorious age of 98. Uh, listen, I'd love to get there. Uh, as long as everything's functioning right, I'd love to get there. He, he lived a ripe old age, but he also experienced some of the things that happen when you get a little bit older. You don't move quite as fast. Um, your body shape starts to change a little bit, and things just don't work right. It says that he was blind. His eyes didn't work well. And that becomes a very important spiritual issue, not just a physical issue, because we'll see that Eli, as a priest, as a judge, isn't just losing his physical sight, he's losing his spiritual discernment as well. That's a big problem when you've got uh, a man of God. He is ingloriously described as being fat. And I don't say that to be crass or colloquial. He's fat, and that will become one of the chief issues of his idolatry, is that he's fat. As a matter of fact, it leads to his premature death, and let me just issue a prophetic warning that if you make yourself fat the same way that Eli did, you will die too as an act of judgment of God. He is nonetheless described as a very devout man. Uh, he cares about the things of God. He is very concerned about the ark because the ark is where God's presence is. Uh, but he is also described as in his old age becoming just a little more lax. You know, he, maybe he doesn't hear quite so well too and he doesn't get on his kids about the stuff that he used to. In his old age, he's just gotten a little more free. He's past the crotchety stage, and now he's just kind of, he doesn't care. He's lax. He has two sons, and his sons' uh, names are Hophni and Phineas. Uh, I don't think that those are on the register of names that are really super popular here today. So if you want to be different, I will submit Hophni and Phineas. Whoever our next parent is, those are free for the taking. So um, have fun with that. But what I want you to do is I want you to look here uh, at 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 12, and we're going to see the sad tale of some selfish leaders. Here's how God's Word uh, describes it. Now, Eli's sons were wicked men. Let me stop there for just a second. Um, in, in the Hebrew, the way that it reads, it says... Uh, the sons of Eli were the sons of Baliel. Okay, when it says his, his sons were sons of wickedness, uh, it literally means they were sons of the devil. You ever had a mischievous kid? You know, some of you have worked in childcare, you know, and you say, man, that Colin Henry, he's full of the devil, you know? And so we, we, we talk about that. Oh, he's mad now. He won't look at me. Don't crawl under the pew. That's not right. You know, but when you have a kid that's ornery, you just say, man, he was, he was full of it here today. He was full of the devil. Well, that's literally what they're saying, that their wickedness was so extreme that they don't, don't just say there are words that they could use to say they were bad, they were rambunctious, they were mischievous. No, it says sons of Eli, comma, sons of Belial, sons of the devil. That was their description. Listen to what else the word says. It says Eli's sons were wicked men, for they had no regard for the Lord or for the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. When a man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling, and he would plunge it into the container or kettle or cauldron or cooking pot. And the priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. 
because he doesn't want to accept boiled meat from you, only raw. Now, if that man said to him, uh, the fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for yourself. The servant would reply, no, I insist that you hand it over right now, and if you don't, I'll take it by force. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because they treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Look down at verse 22. Now Eli was very old, but he had heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. In this passage, right in the middle of it, we skipped over a few verses there in chapter 2. We're introduced to the person of Samuel. Here's the thing that's interesting. If you know the story of Samuel, you know the story of his beginning. But if you don't, let me just summarize it very briefly. He had a mom named Hannah who was barren. She couldn't have kids, and she prayed ardently that God would open her womb and give her the blessing of a child. And God heard that prayer. And here this woman who shouldn't have kids had a kid. And in her gratefulness to God, she dedicated Samuel back to God. And the way that she dedicated her son back to God was by offering him for the priesthood. So she takes him to this man, Eli, and Eli essentially kind of adopts Samuel as his own son. And everything that we see about Samuel in these early chapters just indicate that like, like Jesus growing up as a young man, that, that Samuel was growing up with the favor of God and the favor of men upon him. He was great in the Lord. But yet when you contrast that to the biological sons of, of Eli, the only thing that was great about them was their sin. And specifically, we're told of three sins that they committed. Uh, the first is what we call the priest's share. The Old Testament law specified uh, specifically like cheeks and uh, breasts of sacrificial meat and thighs were the priest's allotment. But while it was specified, they were not satisfied with what the scripture delineated as their portion. God had provided for them uh, through every sacrifice. There was an allotment that was to go to the priests, but they were not satisfied to stay within those boundaries. They would get their, it, it sounds like a pitchfork, <laughs> and go to the pot and <laughs> scoop it up, and whatever was on the shovel was theirs. They were going to get what they could while the getting was good. So they overextended their uh, opportunity to just receive the priest's share. Number two was what we call the Lord's offering. Uh, the Lord's offering was the fat. It was considered the, the juiciest and most, most exquisite part of the meat. It was dedicated to God, and before anything was done with that sacrificial meat, that fat was burned as a burnt offering to the Lord. And yet, uh, Hophni and Phineas were not content to do that because when you have... Um, if you've ever entertained a guest in your house, what do you do when you invite a guest over for dinner? You, know, you take their coat and you take their purse and you put that away and you, you give them the seat of honor in your house and you serve them first, right? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? And so in the same way with the sacrifice, we're supposed to serve God first. We're supposed to trim the fat, the, the, the portion that is the Lord's, and we're supposed to burn that to him. And yet we saw that Hoffman and Phineas, they, weren't, they didn't want God to eat first. They wanted the best part of the meat, and they would even be so egregious in their violation as to take the portion that was to be offered to the Lord. So they didn't serve him first, they served themselves, and they took of the meat before the fat was burned. And you get the idea that even the, the basic, kind of ordinary, normal worshipers are absolutely shocked 
It dis- the disregard that the priests have for what was proscribed in the scriptures. We don't like to admit this, but Hophni and Phineas may have been good Southern Baptists because they valued potlucks over God's provision. God had told them very clearly, this is what is provided for you. But they preferred potluck. Let me stick my fork in it and get a piece of that. And I don't care what belongs to the Lord and what belongs to me. I'm going to get what I want. Thirdly, beyond the priest's share in the Lord's offering, they defiled the very tabernacle by defiling the women that came to serve there. Okay, let me just make this really clear and keep it PG, is they did this at church. So once you leave and you think the building's locked up, it ain't locked up. There are things happening in the tabernacle that you would think certainly an average religious person would think would not be something to do, and yet the very priests are the ones that are perpetrating this great defilement. What a crazy and absolutely egregious abuse of privilege. These men have the privilege of standing in the Old Testament uh, Uh, theological system between man and God and interceding for people and yet they have no interest in God's desires their only interest is in their personal fulfillment what do I get to eat and how do I satisfy my sexual desires and they defile everything that they touch and so we come to the question that is really the, the focus of our sermon but also just the focus of our application Uh, We're going to look at a variety of scriptures here, both in 1 Samuel 2 and 3. We're going to hop around here just a little bit, read a couple in chapter 2, skip over to chapter 3, and we're going to come back to chapter 2. So uh, just kind of play along with us. In chapter 2, verse 29, there's a traveling prophet that comes to Eli and has a word for him, and it's not a good word. And here's what God says through this prophet. We'll start in verse 27. That's not going to be on the screen, but I'll I'll give you a little bit of context here. A man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Didn't I reveal myself to your ancestral house when it was in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace? Out of all of the tribes of Israel, I selected your house, the Levites, to be priests, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I gave your house all of the Israelite fire offerings. Verse 29, here's key. Why then do all of you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? You have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all of the offerings of my people Israel. There's a traveling prophet coming here today Would parents today be in danger of honoring their kids more than the Lord? I think the answer to that is uniformly and unequivocally yes. There's a very fine line between loving them the way that God wants you to and loving them too much that makes us devolve into idolatry. Now this is really important because specifically that word fatness is used. In 2.29, when he issues the rebuke of Eli, he says, you have honored your sons by making yourselves fat. In chapter 4, verse 18, we find that when Eli dies, he hears that the ark has been taken. 
and he kind of falls back in his chair, and it says that he is so heavy, he is so fat that he falls over and he breaks his neck because of his weight, and he dies. So here's what you need to know, why, why this fat issue is, is such an important issue. In Hebrew, the word for the glory of God, to, to say that God has glory is the word kab- kabod, kabod, depending on the vowel structure, which means to ascribe to God gravity. He is heavy. He is substantial. You know, we say he is a man of substance. You know, when he walks in the room, people know that he's there. He has gravity. And so what is happening is by taking from the Lord's offering, taking the fat and making themselves fat, they are self-glorifying themselves instead of giving glory to God. And that is what's happening in this entire episode. His girth is his curse because he is more interested in fulfilling his own personal desires and making himself fat instead of making much of God and giving glory to him. Does that make sense? So this is a huge issue here in the condemnation of Eli and his uh, coming judgment. Now here's the thing. Uh, Eli is guilty because he's glorifying his sons by not correcting them. Now we can talk about why that happens. Why would a priest not discipline his priestly sons. And Eli doesn't just get off for not correcting his sons. He's implicated in their wrongdoing. How do you think Eli got so fat? Okay, Hophni and Phinehas may be the ones with the pitchfork sticking it in the cauldron, but who's eating the food? Obviously, Eli is. So he's not free and clear of this. He's fattening himself by stealing the Lord's portion and glorifying himself instead of God. Look down at verses 31 through 34 of chapter 2. God makes a specific pronouncement to Eli, and he says this, Look, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your ancestral family so that none in your family will reach an old age. Verse 34, this will be the sign that will come to you concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Both of them will die on the same day. Turn over a page to chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. Here, God is revealing himself to Samuel. And you remember the story. Samuel's in the tabernacle complex, uh, and he keeps hearing a voice. And so he runs to Eli and says, Eli, you called me. And he goes, I didn't call you. And he goes back and he lays down again, and then Samuel hears a voice. And then he runs to Eli. Eli, what do you want? You called me. Oh, I didn't call you. You know what? Samuel, I think God is speaking to you. So Eli, even though he's corrupt, he's devout, he's a weird mixture of motivations. He knows enough to train young Samuel how to listen to the voice of God. And when Samuel listens to God for the very first time, what he gets told is to call out his mentor. Samuel, here's what I'm going to do. I've already told Eli what I'm going to do to him. What I'm doing is I'm telling you, and you need to tell him, because this doesn't need to be a private conversation between Eli and I, because judgment is coming. And I don't want people to think that Eli just died. He died because I've cursed him. Chapter 3, verse 11 through 14. The Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do something in Israel that everyone who hears about it will shudder. Their ears will will tingle. On that day, I will carry out against Eli everything I said about his family from beginning to end. I told him that I'm going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity he knows about. His sons are defiling the sanctuary and he has not stopped them. Therefore, I have sworn to Eli's family the iniquity of your family will never be wiped out by either sacrifice or by offering. Eli knows what is happening. 
and he's more concerned with keeping the peace than he is with correcting his sons. Now, if you know anything about the story, you go, well, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Eli did try to do something. Eli did, did try to stop his voice. Flip back to chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Actually, we'll go back to verse 22. We read that a minute ago. Now, Eli was very old, and he heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Verse uh, 23, he said to them, why are you doing these things? I have heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my sons, the report I hear from the Lord's people is not good. Verse 25, if a man sins against another man, God can intercede for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, Eli, since the Lord intended to kill them. By contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. Here's the issue. We're told specifically at the very beginning of this episode that Eli was very old. If he's very old, 98, it says in chapter 4, verse 15, his boys are probably in their 30s or 40s. Now, I don't work with wood much, but I know if you want to bend a tree, you don't wait till it's mature. You want to bend a bow or a branch? When do you do it? You do it while it's green and it's still pliable. And yet Eli, as the father of Hophni and Phinehas, at some point just failed to learn that lesson. He, he failed to get his boys to bow while they were still green and pliable and open to being shaped with the, the circumstances that God had placed them in. How do you break a fully mature branch? Or how do you bend it? You break it. Parents, that's a terrible thing to, to, for us to really come to understand is that by the time we realize the mistakes that we've made, perhaps it's too late for us to correct them. Perhaps we've already cast the die because we've not used those early informative years to shape hearts and character and minds and actions that are what God wants. And so here, Eli has the daunting task of correcting his 30 and 40-year-old boys that maybe just a very slight course correction 25 years ago would have accomplished exactly what needed to happen. We're told that Eli tells his sons what he hears, but they don't hear what he has to say to them. There's no respect. What does Eli do? He basically provides a slap on the wrist and says, boys, it's not good. But he doesn't call out any of their sins specifically. He's very generic. And his words end up being very lame, very light, and completely ineffective. In contrast, Samuel hears God's voice and obeys, while Eli's sons hear their earthly father's voice and continue to ignore him. The issue here is that Eli certainly did reprimand his sons. Eli reprimanded them, but he did not rebuke them. There was no punishment. There were just words. You know what? Your words will only get you so far. There is a point where your words have to be backed up by some kind of action. Now, let's just be really clear here, okay? Because I think as parents, there's always the opportunity for lots of guilt and would've, should've, could'ves, okay? Parents, you are not in any way responsible for the conversion of your kids. God saves and God alone. If you could do it, then Jesus didn't need to come. Okay, You are not responsible for the conversion of your kids. And neither is Eli in this situation. 
Eli is not responsible for the sinful behavior of his adult boys, and neither are you. Here's where the uh, error comes. Eli is guilty for honoring his sons above God, and therefore he's guilty of breaking the first commandment. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. And Eli is guilty as charged. If the priest wouldn't enforce the law's demands upon his own sons, what moral authority would he have to require righteousness from the nation? He's corrupt as a priest in the very idol of his own heart has shown up, and his idol is himself because he's made himself fat, and his idol is his kids because he's made them fat as well. He has glorified them. And so we are told that our hearts are idol-making factories. The minute you take this one off the shelf, your heart's got another one out there for you, and you don't even know it because your heart is, the Bible says, deceptively wicked. Your heart will produce idols, and you just think they're good things, and they're not good things because then you love them inordinately, and then good things become bad things. So how does idolatry show up, and how did it show up for Eli? I don't know. Some of this will be anachronistic, but I think here's three ways that idolatry can show up. Eli loved the idol of compliments. The idol of compliments. Whoa, you have two sons that are in the ministry? Wow, you must be so proud. Or when they were young and before they really got twisted and wicked. Wow, Eli, your sons, they're so well behaved. They, they really know their... Uh, Torah verses, you know, they, good, good gracious, this, this is so impressive, their careers and their, their thing, and, and Eli sold out for compliments from people and praise from humans that he was not concerned about compliments from God, because those are a lot harder to come by. I can get people to clap for me much more quickly than I can get God to, and his idol of compliments caused him to not correct his sons. Here's one that I don't know if it was Eli's problem, but it's one that I see with parents a lot today, and it's the idol of friendship. The idol of friendship. You see, every parent has to make a choice whether they want to be loved by their kids or whether they want to be respected. See, every parent who wants to be their kid's best friend, and then about the time they turn 14, they start getting crazy, then they try to be the authority. And the problem is if you haven't laid that foundation when they're young, you will not have, you'll have a snowball's chance in Miami of being an authority. Because if you've not, you cannot bring authority on when you've been the play partner all the time. You have to lay the foundation of authority while they're green so that when they're a little more rigid, you can exercise your authority well. And yet I see parent after parent that wants to be their kid's friend and not be their parent. They want to be their BFF. And they settle for being loved instead of being respected. I was involved in higher education for about 10 years. And I would see people applying for PhD programs with their mom showing up for their PhD interview. My wife has been involved in higher education and secondary education for a while. And we see parents that freak out when their kid gets a B. Well, you know what? That's the best your kid is capable of, so deal with it. Not my kid. Well, you know what? If everybody's a straight-A student, we might as well just get rid of the grading scale. Because you know what? Average still exists. We get so caught up with this, and we get caught up with success. You've seen the bumper stickers. My kids are cuter and smarter than yours, and yours are ugly and stupid. 
It's just the thing that happens. And we find ways to pat ourselves on the back because it's okay socially to brag on your kids. Oh, yeah, my kid's, you know, on a roll student for 15 years. I have no idea where they got their smarts, you know. Please, you know. Well, yeah, maybe they got it from their mom, but they got their good looks from me, you know. <laughs> it's, it, is, it is bragging on ourselves and exposing our own idolatry when we deal with this. And the problem is this. When you do this, when you thrive on compliments that you hear about your kids, when you sell out being a parent and you settle for being a friend, when you're so concerned about their success and you live vicariously as a helicopter parent through them, you have done something tragic. You have made your kids the center of the universe. And when you do that, they become dictators. They become brats. And the problem is you have no idea the massive shift that has taken place because you're so busy bowing down and worshiping them that you don't even understand that nobody else likes your kids anymore because they're brats. Because they think that the entire universe revolves around them and you're so busy worshiping them to forget that you worship God because, hey, I show up to church on Sunday. And that is not worship if we're not worshiping Him with our lives all the time. And here's the thing that is so tragic. For Eli, this happens right in the midst of serving at the tabernacle at the very place where God is to be worshipped, most expressly, his leaders are not demonstrating what it means to love God. His leaders are demonstrating what it means to have an idol that is greater than God in their life, and it's wicked. So if idolatry is a real threat to us, how do we deal with this? Five things that I'll give you quickly, and then we'll move on to our last point. Number one, uh, you'll see the word fruit pop up. How do you combat idolatry? Be more concerned about fruit fruit of the Spirit, fruit of uh, our labors. Be more concerned about fruit increasing and multiplying than man's empty praise. Be more concerned about something that really matters instead of whether your kid has a thousand friends on Facebook. Number two, if you truly want your kids to not be idol worshipers, then you yourself need to fall fully under God's authority. How are your kids supposed to respect your authority when you don't respect any? You are training your kids to be idol worshipers if you don't bow under God's authority. So model it for them. God tells you very clearly that you are to lead your children. So you are, when you are leading your kids, you are under God's authority, doing what He tells you to do, and He tells you to lead your children, not be led by them. Number three, know God's standards and strive to live them out. It is not enough to have a generic appreciation for the Bible, but zero obedience. Know God's standards and live them out. Number four, make regular worship a part of your regular regimen. Nothing snuffs out idolatry more than a loud voice, happy-hearted worship of God. You, you cannot worship God and worship yourself or your kids at the same time. They cannot occupy the same zip code. Number five, priorities. We have to put our kids in their place and we have to reserve spot number one for God. And so if you're a parent, you should be able to say with a great big smile on your face uh, in the knowledge that you are glorifying God by saying this, by telling your kids that I love you so much and you are most gloriously number three in my life. After God, after my spouse, it's you. And yet, we feel like third place is second loser. Well, it's not first place. It doesn't really matter. 
And yet we have to have our priorities right, that God is number one, that our spouse is number two, and our kids are number three, and that order's never going to change. It is, it is stymieing to me and discouraging to me to know that the highest divorce rate, uh, the, highest, the fastest growing divorce rate in our, our country is empty nesters who devote all of their time to bowing down to their kids that when the kids leave the nest, they look at each other and go, who are you? You know, and you were a lot cuter 20 years ago. And you weren't quite so kabod, you know. You weren't quite so glorious. You were less glorious and much more attractive and... It's a problem. And listen, just to get away from the Old Testament for a second, the New Testament says this is very, very important too. If you look at the pastoral epistles, when the Bible talks about the calling to be an elder or a deacon, there's, there are these couple of things that are thrown in there. If you're to be an elder, a teacher in the church, a pastor, that you're, you're supposed to lead your household in such a way that your children are reverent, submitted. If you're to be a deacon, you are to rule your children and your home well. So listen, you may go, hey, I'm not an elder. I'm not a deacon. This doesn't apply to me. Listen, it applies to all parents. What Christian does God not want for you to have reverent or submitted children who are ruled well? This applies to everyone. We are to use, we are to rule, use management skills, plan, organize, train, deploy our kids for maximum glorification to God. And what we find is that Eli just seemed to forget this because Eli's weaknesses impaired his witness. He may have been the one who trained Samuel, who became this great prophet of God, but yet in his own family he was a failure because it wasn't just his physical sight that had gotten bad, but he had lost his spiritual discernment and he had lost sound judgment. God had put Eli in a place where it was the, he, he was the best-positioned person on the face of the planet to shape and to channel the energies of his kids. And if Eli would fail to exercise sound judgment upon Hophni and Phinehas, then God said, your opportunity has passed. Now it's time for me to bring my judgment. So that's our third and final point, that even in God's judgment of idolatry, we'll see that there is hope. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 10. I'm going to tell you a story, and then we'll look at the verse here. The beginning of chapter 4, Israel goes to war with the Philistines, and it's an ill-advised battle. They don't really consult the Lord, and that's that's not a good thing for you to do with any decision that you have to make, especially going to war. So they go to war, and it's not good. 3,000 Israelites die that day. And so they say, we need to regroup and we need to rethink our strategy. Hey, I got a great idea. We've got the Ark of the Covenant of God at Shiloh. Let's bring that out to the battle. And every time we bring that out, it's like our secret weapon. God smites our enemies. And so um, who can carry it? Oh, Hophni, Phinehas, you guys grab the Ark and bring it out to battle. And that's what we find in verse 10. Chapter 4, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated, and each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. The ark of God was captured by the Philistines, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had died. This is what happened on the battlefield. Nobody at Shiloh knows what's happening. So a man who is a reporter of what happens 
runs 22 miles back to Shiloh to say what happens. And Eli's sitting at the gate waiting to hear what happened with the ark of God. Because even though he's perverse, he's still devout. He's, he's mixed up in his motives. He loves God, but not enough to correct his sons. But he's listening to hear what happens. And the guy who's coming to report just runs right by Eli, goes to the town square, and he starts to tell everybody what happens. And it creates an uproar. People are weeping and crying. And we go down to verse 15, and we see what happens. Verse 14, Eli heard the outcry and he said, what's the commotion? And the man quickly came and reported to Eli. Verse 15, at that time, Eli was 98 years old and his gaze was fixed because he couldn't see. And the man said to Eli, I'm the one who came from the battle. I fled from there today. What happened? Eli asked and the messenger answered and you almost sense the drama. He goes from the less, least severe to the most severe. The messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines. Number two, also, there was a great slaughter among the people. Number three, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead. Number four, and the ark of God has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off the chair by the city gate. And since he was old and heavy, his neck broke and he died after having judged Israel for 40 years. The life testimony of a man who loved God loved him imperfectly was God's judgment upon his life. And just like Jesus in his time and age, he cleansed the temple, God cleansed the tabernacle, and most ultimately because the Eli dynasty, Eli with his two sons, the, 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 <clears throat> the defilement was so significant that God purified the tabernacle by allowing the Philistines to destroy it. It ceased to exist. The ark of God was captured, and Indiana Jones wasn't anywhere around to get it back. The temple was purified, but it was purified through judgment. And here's the thing that's so crazy, is sometimes we get so about our business of living our Christian lives that we forget when God, God's presence disappears. They take the ark, thinking that God is going with them, and he's not even in the same zip code. And so what happens? The ark gets captured, and they get more... Uh, shook up about the physical possession of the ark than they do about the actual presence of the Lord. And so God's objects are not worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of worship. And if you worship anything else, you stand to lose everything that opposes itself to the worship of God. Leaders, sons, arks, and tabernacles. And so here's the point of application for you today. Your kids cannot bear the weight of your worship. They were never designed to. Again, as a created human being, they were made to give, not to receive worship. For sure, Eli's sons were not worthy of worship, and neither are yours. If you believe the praise of your kids that you hear from Sunday school teachers and uh, school teachers and fail to understand that they are little sinners just like you, you have failed your children miserably. Because you know what? Your kids are sinners. And so are you, Mom and Dad. And so am I. And so is everybody that's in this room. They are, our kids are not worthy of our worship. But there is a child that is. And her name is Jesus Christ. He is God's Son, who is the only person that has lived without sin. And if you flip back to chapter 2, verse 35, in the midst of God's judgment on Eli, Eli, you're dead. Your kids are dead. You're never going to have an old person in your family line forever because of this curse. 
Verse 35, 1 Samuel chapter 2. But there will be a day when I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever is in my heart and in my mind, and I will establish a lasting dynasty for him. And he will walk before my anointed one for all time. Certainly this applies in the immediate context to Samuel and eventually to the priest Zadok, but it applies most perfectly and most ultimately to the person of Christ. When God is done with Eli, he promises that there will be a leader that is raised up that will have God's heart for obedience, for sanctification, for his people. So parents, don't ever say that your kids are your life. They may be the fruit of your life. But if Jesus is not your life, you're an idol worshiper. And it's only as you clearly live for him, it's only as you clearly live for Jesus that you can do everything that you truly want to do for your kids. That your life will not just be what you earn and what you buy and what you do, but your life will serve as a road marker pointing kids to their creator and to the only redeemer that is worthy of our worship, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, it is so hard for us when we know we are supposed to live and love and sacrifice for our kids. It is hard to know where we cross that line. I pray that you examine our hearts that there will be space in our heart for one, and that one will be you. God, because you tell us when we seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness, that all these things will be added unto us. And so God, help us to love our kids in a way that glorifies you and is for their good, but help us not to love them too much. Help us to understand the very precious stewardship that you give to us to shape them, to mold them, and as Charles Spurgeon said, to shoot them as living arrows into a time that we ourselves will not see. Help us to understand the precious privilege of being a parent who loves God, first of all, rejects idols, and loves our kids and points them to you. In Jesus' name we pray.